on this week's prequel episode, we follow up on our divergent listener polls and preview James and the Giant Peach. Hello and welcome back to This Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. We have a lot of listener feedback. We got some previewing to do for James and the Giant Peach. But before we get to all of that, we're going to do our patron shout-outs. I put up with you because your father and mother were our finest patrons, that's why. No new patrons this week, but we do have our Academy Award-winning top patrons, and they are Vic Dangerously, Matilde, Steve from Arizona, Paul, Jeff Niederhofer, Teresa Schwartz, Ian from Wine Country, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby Says Pay Writers, That Darn Skag, V Frank, and Alina Starkov. Thank you all very much for continuing to support us at the Academy Award winning level. And we here at This Film is Lit co-signed Shelby's name this week. Pay the writers, if you're not aware. Uh, the Writing Guild out in Hollyweird is, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> is striking currently, along with, uh, I think, some other unions joined them recently. I can't recall. For uh, better pay, for a uh, reasonable pay. And, uh, yes, we, we have not talked about it here, really, because there's not a whole lot to talk about other than, yeah, support unions, support the writers' union. They... You know, deserve to be paid for pay what the they writers. do. There you go. It's pretty straightforward. All right. We have lots of feedback for our first installment of the 2023 summer series, Divergent. So let's get into that now. Yeah. Well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. On Patreon, we had one vote for the book, one for the movie, and two listeners who couldn't decide. A handful of fish bones said, Woof, I made it about 70% through the book and 70% through the movie. With peace and love, I think that's all I can take. I'll probably have more fun just listening to y'all talk about it. I just, it would have been more interesting if the faction system was less like a series of interlocking cults of people and more like an ant colony where jobs would be genetically decided. That's Brave New World, is it not? That's. <laughs> Part of, of, yeah, that's part of Brave New World. (laughs) A person would be less a person and more a function within society. And yeah, that's basically the thesis of Brave New World. Yeah, and that is what they're going, what a little, at least to some extent, what Veronica Roth is going for here. A little bit. A little bit, yeah. If she made the system and the people more rigid and less human, then the the humanity of a divergent of nonconformity would be in greater contrast. As it is, the system fundamentally doesn't make sense because everyone feels like a normal, multifaceted person. Maybe that's the point. See, this is so interesting because I agree that's the point. But this next sentence is also are very compelling and make me question the point of the book. Anyways, continue. Yeah. That rigid systems are stupid and you should just let people live. But then what's a divergence? Yes, that's... <laughs> Why have their brains be different? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's the part that really makes it. And weird. I, I think that is and, you know, I'll withhold like a lot of judgment until we read the other two right. installments in the series, because we don't really know where she's going no, with this. this. Is true, yeah. I have no idea. I you know, have yeah, no, idea. no idea. But it does seem like the thesis is a bit 
muddled. Yes. Because it feels like the point, like the overall point that she's making is that people are multifaceted yeah. and they all have like a little bit of all of yes, these different and this qualities. Class system is dumb. Yeah, and, and this this system is to... dumb and it's not a good idea for us to pigeonhole ourselves into right. like singular things. But then why have divergent But then why have divergent people who are labeled as such shouldn't yeah. everybody be Yeah, divergent? wouldn't everybody be divergent at least in some and, degree. And maybe that is the twist reveal. Maybe. But it's not possible. It doesn't seem possible because cuz I actually wondered that if maybe somehow like literally everybody is divergent but they just don't but they wouldn't and maybe some people don't tell them i don't know i because yeah it does seem the move the, the book and movies seem to imply that people who are divergent have some sort of different like literally different physical makeup yeah because it, it makes them somehow immune to the, the you know the simulation drugs yeah that they're using in this universe so it's not just like it's not just like a weird um, classification or like it's not it's not a superficial difference that these people are somehow aware that they don't fit into these groups. It's also that there is literally physically something different. Yes. About these people, which that then feels weird because it does feel like the point of the book should be these class systems don't make sense. This is a stupid system. Like, that seems right. like what the point should be. But then when you introduce the divergent into that, it makes it very confusing and what the actual point is. If there are people who defy these classes, then then do some people actually do fit into these class systems? And that, it is that good would, for some people. That would like, be what the existence of divergence seems to apply. Seems imply, to imply, yes. That most people do, in fact, yes. fit into this caste system. Which is very strange, if that's yeah. the point. But again, we don't know, don't and it's know. hard to say now without being further in the series. We will obviously revisit this uh, as <laughs> we continue through the series. I guess but. we'll find out. I hope we find out, and the next two books don't just like completely go off a cliff. But who don't knows? completely diverge. Yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. A handful of fishbones went on to say, "Everything is too messy. Send it back for edits. Please try again." Anyway, I give it to the book. Watching the silly stuff play out on screen was too much for me. In the book, I can at least play pretend and warp things to be more digestible. But on a more positive note, I am hype for James and the Giant Peach. Sweet. Well, that's exciting. We're glad about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I we, we, we struggled both ways. It's it, it really the thing that pushed it over for me and I think Katie, too, was just the, the movie... Um, secularizing the story yeah was it was a big factor in why we chose the movie uh and it's shorter and more digestible than reading the whole book when we don't really yeah. like either sometimes the movie can be better just by the nature of it being shorter which i think some comments are going to mention <laughs> as we continue <laughs> through here so uh, our next comment was from matilde who said i agree with most of what you guys said but in the end i can't say which one i preferred I haven't read a lot of YA books, but to me, this one was fine. Nothing more, but nothing less either. I will say this. I've read a lot of YA and probably or not a lot. I've read an, a, an OK amount of YA. I, it's, I enjoy the genre a lot. I grew up reading it. I continue to read it, you know, whatever. Um, I don't, I, not like I read it all the mm -hmm. time, but it is if I want to read something for fun, not for the show, I will very often read something that probably falls in the YA, yeah, at least same. to some extent. It, it's pretty digestible yeah. when you're looking for something just for like fun, for fun and yeah. to have like a nice time. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. Generally, it's just an enjoyable thing, and I, you know, there's there's something to be said for challenging yourself with reading and stuff. But again, we we do the podcast where we read other stuff and and whatever it you know, recreationally reading. I, I often I will go to YA. That being said, uh, there's a lot better YA out there. Than, yeah, like and not yeah. even not even yeah. This isn't even in the the top fifty percent of YA I've read. Um, not even close. So. Mm. Yeah. No. Was, uh, yeah. I've I've read a fair bit of YA as well, and I mean, I t- I tend to gravitate more towards either fantasy or like realism over like the sci-fi. Yeah. YA. I like all of it, but I don't really care. But yeah. But this is. It's not particularly. It's not particularly great. No. Um, Tilde went on to say, same goes for the movie. As a PG thirteen action flick, it's okay. As an adaptation, it has its highs and lows. On the plus side for the book, I liked the ruthlessness of the initiation. It was way more fitting than what we got in the movie. I also preferred the characterization in the book, even if there could have been more. Tobias's in particular. I liked his fragility in the book. It was cliche, the love interest with a tormented past, but not as bad as I've seen. Overall, it's an intriguing concept that needs a lot of editing and revising for sure, but still, it kept me interested. I will say I agree with that. Like, it's also not the worst YA yes. I've ever read. Like, it I've read far worse. It did keep me interested. I wasn't disinterested in the story. It just a lot of the pieces didn't add up in a way that was satisfying yeah. for me. But it wasn't like I was horribly bored know. reading it necessarily. See, I don't know if I was interested in it as much as I was just like trying to figure out what was going on and like continuing to read hoping that i would get answers at some point yeah which is a type of interest obviously it's not the best form of you know of of a book holding your interest for sure it's not the platonic ideal of a book holding your interest but there's at least i think there's a subtle difference though in like you're interested and reading to find out what happens because the story is like grabbing you and reading to find out what happens because you don't know what the fuck is going on. Yes. No, I don't think it's a subtle difference. <laughs> I think that's a huge difference. My point <laughs> is, uh, that was what I was saying, is that I it's it's not the platonic ideal of keeping your interest, but it's still better than a story that you truly do not care about in any way. Yeah, I guess I would so. argue. And it's just like a slog, a boring slog to get through. Uh, you know, I, I, Fifty Shades had that at times for me, yeah. where, you know, like comparing it to something like that. Obviously, it's a different genre, but like. But I mean, that is a good point. I, like, I truly did not care yeah. most of the time during. I could have put it down yeah. at any time. Yeah. And like, you know, there was occasionally something it, it, like very rarely I'd be like, well, I'm interested to see where this goes. But like very rarely. Yeah. Uh, and so much of it was just a slog to get through. Whereas I didn't feel like this was a slog to get through. It just also wasn't particularly engaging for me. <laughs> like, yeah. okay, I guess is kind of where I would land. I, for me, it was almost not quite a hate read. Hmm. But there was more of like, like when we read The Hunger Games, I kept reading because I was like, oh my God, what's going to yeah, happen? Yes, yeah. But like with this, it was like, when will they tell me what's happening right yes no i yes like i said i agree uh it's just yeah it's it's definitely and honestly i wasn't quite in that regard i wasn't quite that far down i i was moderately interested in where the story was going and stuff um it's yes it's no hunger games which isn't even you know the peak uh, i would argue of of the genre but but even and the hunger games is quite good um as we talked about a lot last year but i, I like the or two years 
two years two ago. Two years ago. Yeah. Um, like the Hunger Games a lot, but it's yeah, it's um, I, I I guess for me it wasn't quite as I didn't have quite as rough of a time with it as you did. I just didn't particularly like it that much. <laughs> uh, Mathilde went on to say, I just took it for what it was and didn't dissect the structure. In my experience, most dystopian concepts don't hold up to tough scrutiny anyway. The movie did a great job putting clearer visuals to the book's blurry descriptions, but on the other hand, they cut so much it felt like a whirlwind and not in a good way. While I appreciate that they removed a lot of the cringe of the purity vibe and the over-explaining of the narration, so much detail was also removed that it made it hard to like any of the characters as they deserved. I actually loved Will and Al. I enjoyed hating Peter for the horrible things he does, like his attack on Edward, etc. I get that it's an approach we can make to almost any summer action movie, but I really would like to see one that cuts down on the action for the profit of the character moments that endear them to us. Especially here, where the action was quite meh. It's also a shame that they skip over so much because I thought all the actors were doing great work. It made it more frustrating. I liked so many of the small moments they managed to keep. Loved the hand-holding scene on the train. It actually came off genuine and not too cheesy. And the mother's death scene. Very realistic, especially when Tris pointlessly screams at them to stop. I also liked the sibling scene at the beginning before they go to the choosing ceremony. It was subtly emotional and effective. I'm not a fan of Shailene, but she surprised me here. She was compelling to watch, and she had fantastic chemistry with Theo James and the rest of the cast. The one thing I didn't want them to keep is Will being killed, but no luck there. Then again, it's my curse to fall in love with disposable secondary characters. A detail I also would have seen explored... I had a feeling Caleb chose Erudite, yes, because he felt a kinship there, but also because he was planning to spy on them, huh. either right from the start or after he'd been initiated and figured them out more. It felt like a possibility in the book, and it would have been a better storyline than the underuse of his character in this movie. I didn't get hung up on the whole for Tobias thing at the end of the movie like you guys did, but it's a very valid point that I missed. I guess I saw it differently because I was focused on how she used his fear of killing someone while looking at them to break the simulation. Something that made way more sense narratively than just talking to him and hoping her voice would cut through. In both the movie and the book, I thought the story should have just covered the test, the choosing ceremony, and the initiation. It could have ended on a cliffhanger with the discovery of the Erudite's plan, but having the whole attack botched and rushed at the end was a miscalculation, in my opinion. I get that it's harder to sell to a younger audience, but on the other hand, it would have made a better story for everyone else. Or they could have adapted the book as a miniseries. TV shows were more difficult to sell 10 years ago, but this really should have been one. They could have fixed the over-explaining of the book, the holes in the concept, and explored the characters and world more in-depth. And maybe put better music over it all. The soundtrack was painful. Yes. P.S. Katie, you will have to tear the italicized O from my cold dead hands. This is the moment I look forward to in every single romantic storyline, in every medium, in every genre. I don't care if it's a trope. It's the trope that should always be used because it is infallible. I don't know if you disagree with that, do you? I don't even necessarily no. disagree with that. It's just something that I always find a little bit funny yeah. when I come across it. And it's especially funny, I think, in something that's not particularly well done. Yeah. Because it does tend to be a hallmark of stuff that's like 
yeah. not particularly yes. well done. Yes. Yeah, it's a very uh, it's it's a it's a very um, cliche trope, and and so it shows up in stuff that is you know maybe not the most fleshed out, well rounded literature. Yeah, but uh, it's still it's a great yeah. No, I have no problem with that. I think it's fun. I think it's a great moment. I love it. I have no problem with it. Uh, and I agree with a lot of what you said. I, I obviously, I, I my point. I've argued before that everything should be a TV show. Um, despite my film degree, movies suck. Uh, <laughs> it's not true, but. <laughs> Uh, everything should be every book adaptation should be a TV show, uh, basically, arguably, in my opinion, depending on barring certain very specific um, situations. Generally speaking, TV shows just give you more time to, to, to kind of flesh things out in a way that I find more satisfying. But perfect movies exist. So who knows? Uh, I also agree that the um, the acting was great. I thought all the performances were really good. Uh, and. And I, I would have I could have used them expanding some of the moments that uh, she talked about in terms of the actual character work and, and mm-hmm. not giving us quite as much of the action because who who cares? Um, that doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, again, because the action even in the book was not particularly good or that interesting. Um, and then uh, I I did not get anything. Uh, uh, the main other thing I want to talk about is that I didn't get anything with the idea of. Uh, uh, Caleb joining Ariadite as like a yeah I I mean a, a covert agent when that when she meets up back up with him at the end he says something about how like after she visited him he did like look into yes but that's after the she stuff yeah him. I it never seem like he joined I never got any. the vibe that he was like a mole or no, anything or even remotely part of his motivation yeah. initially again I I think he he does look into that after she talks to him she kind of like snaps mm-hmm. him out of it a little bit and and makes him kind of second guess things and look into stuff a bit but yeah i i didn't get any vibe that that was the case in the book but it would be interesting I it think would be interesting done they could like have that. done something like that i think what would be interesting is if he had stayed yes in erudite and like continued, continued to be to work from the inside yeah yeah that would have been that would have been really interesting yeah, that i think that would have worked if after especially after um tris comes and talks to him and kind of puts that doubt into him he mm-hmm. does some research figures out what's going on and then yeah stays on the inside and then you could go a while of not knowing and yeah. maybe they could still do that where he somehow ends is, up yeah he's able to go back go they, back they and, like don't know that he left or something yeah and then he goes back and it kind of works undercover which didn't you have wasn't your idea that or was that tobias or was it um, so you, one of your predictions was that somebody uh, that was uh her friend christine I was going to say it was going to like defect over Will. No, no, no. You had it. Somebody was going to get PETA. It was going to get. Yeah, taken. that was that was Caleb. That was Caleb. Yeah. So you almost predict that's kind of what you're well, like the opposite. But <laughs> but but like a similar plot it's line similar of him going spirit, back. Yes. And, and yeah, it just reminded me. Of, I was like, I thought there was some prediction you had about basically Caleb being captured and then um, getting released back to them. Or them rescuing him, but it, mm-hmm. then he was like brain brainwashed by, and it's like yeah. being mind controlled by erudite. Whereas this is like the flip of that, where he goes back to them mm-hmm. as a double agent. Uh, it goes back to erudite as a double agent, which could be interesting. I don't know. Yeah, no, very cool. All right, our last comment on Patreon was from Charlene, who said, I can't remember if this is ever mentioned in the books. I read them 10 years ago, enjoyed them, but didn't make a huge impression. 
but in my head, it makes sense for Tris not to recognize Tobias because he's just become a totally different person since leaving. He probably buffed up quite a bit going through dauntless training. He's no longer living in an abusive situation. 16 to 18 feels late for a really transformative growth spurt, but that could have played into it as well. Add to the fact that he's introduced with a different name, it doesn't feel too off to me that she wouldn't have recognized him. It would feel odd if she didn't remember him after learning who he really was. Okay, yeah, that's what I was about to yeah. say. Yeah, continue, sorry. Um, unless he was totally hidden and it was like a what? Marcus never had a son kind of thing. No. So I agree that not addressing it at all is an oversight and something the movie could have corrected by adding a line or two. Yeah, I think that's because I, I was thinking as the first part of this, I was like, OK, maybe like if, if yeah. I'm being very generous, maybe it's possible that, yes, he has changed enough physically and it's just whatever. She only saw him a handful of times and he's different looking enough. Maybe he had longer hair and he cut his hair. Well, whatever. Yeah. You know? Maybe there's enough physical changes that she doesn't recognize him. But then once she realizes who it is or like once she's like, oh, my God, this is Tobias, she should have like acknowledged it in some way. Mm-hmm. And in the book, she she like. It it's just never really addressed. Like she knows yeah. who that is. She's like, oh, Tobias, that's Marcus's son. Like she knows who it is, but doesn't seem to really know him at all. Yeah. Or, or, or I, like, I don't know. I I think I think that Veronica Roth could have done a lot of work here simply by having Triss the first time she sees him think to herself he looks kind of familiar but i couldn't place him so i guess it's just somebody i saw in school a couple times or something and yeah for my memory that does not happen no i I don't think it does yeah i I agree that could have helped too again it's not that big of a deal overall but it is it's just one of those little things that's kind of like okay that got overlooked (laughs) yeah feels like it is, but it like it. It is, I think, one of those things that makes Tris feel very odd as a narrator. Yeah, because there, there's just like stuff here and there that it's almost like she doesn't even react to. Yeah, that like a normal person would react yeah. to. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, because you would think maybe once she realized, or like, because then, yeah, even in the book, if you had a line, once she realizes it's Tobias, that it's Marcus's son, where she's like. She thinks to herself, you know, we never really interact like, yeah, I, I'm stunned. I didn't recognize him. But I guess it makes sense because we never really were yeah, around, we you know, someone we like, didn't really talk. To yeah, we never I, like. Yeah, he he he, he I, I was, you know, a few years younger than him and we never really ran in the same circles. I never I only saw him like twice or yeah, so you don't have to get super specific, but just any amount of like. Any amount of acknowledgement, <laughs> yes, that it's kind of a weird situation that, that this would have gone a long way. <laughs> that seemingly a person who was basically went to your high school in a relatively small community because yeah. I saw somebody on the internet do the math about this as well. That was like, you know, basing like on the number of initiates in Dauntless. And this is like the same thing people do with like Harry Potter and stuff of like figuring out how many people are like part of this community roughly mm-hmm. or like or, or like how many kids at least are part of this community. Like Dauntless has 30 initiates, right? I believe total something like that in the ballpark of 30, like half of them are transfers and half of them are mm-hmm. Dauntless born or whatever. So they have roughly 30 initiates. If you assume every group has in the rough ballpark of 30, then it's only like 
what is that? It's uh, 150 kids. Yeah. Total for the whole, like in her grade, quote unquote, that would be her age. Yeah. Which means if it's a high school, that's 400 or 500 kids or whatever, uh, or whatever the math, five, 550 kids, I think. Um, uh, my math, my brain is dying. But yes, somewhere <laughs> in that ballpark, it's it's like under a thousand kids and more than 400 kids. Why can't I do the math? 150 times five times four. 200, 600. Good Lord. 600 kids in her like, quote unquote, high school. Mm-hmm. My high school had 2000 kids. I uh, not anymore. But when I was in high school, I knew every single person's name. Yeah, probably. Maybe there was like, a handful. You at least know their face. You at least passing. know their face. And you at least. Yeah. You're like, oh, that's that guy. Yeah. Even if and, you don't know their name. And or... this is actually even a little bit different because he, he's and th- that's all the kids everywhere. Like she wouldn't have ever seen the Dauntless people, really. Yeah, that's that's 150 right. kids. If in... he was from an if he was from another faction, sure, sure. But that's 150 kids in abnegation, roughly. Yeah, within a four year stretch. Right. So it's 150 kids that she, that were in her. There's just no way you wouldn't. No. Yeah. Because not only do they go to the same small high school, they live on, in the same neighborhood. Yeah. They probably live on the same street. I guess like, that's a better comparison. There was 150 abnegation kids. Yes, he was or in each year. He was too above her. So even if you add all those people, it's like 400 people like kids, roughly that she, from between her grade and his grade. And that 400 people, like my senior class was 450 kids or something like that. And Mm -hmm. I know I knew every single person's name had probably spoken to almost every single person, at least a handful of times. Yeah. Had classes with like every single person a handful of times. Yeah. It's just and and that's disregarding the fact that they would have grown up again if they were six years apart, five years apart. Okay. Sure. They're two years apart. Yeah, it just doesn't. It doesn't add up. I don't think. But <laughs> um, all right. Uh, Charlene's last comment here was: Anyway, looking forward to James and the Giant Peach. It was the first chapter book we did as a read aloud when my son was four. He's eight now, but I might try to revisit with him and get his input. From <laughs> oh, the listener that would be poll. the first eight-year-old's input for the listener poll. I would. That'd love be the that. first child's input we've had. I, or think maybe. I, I don't want to say that necessarily. We may have had some, like Kelly or somebody may have gotten one yeah. of their kids input on something previously that I'm just not recalling. But please do uh, <laughs> have them watch the movie, too, and t- uh, scare them. And then I, I don't think it's that scary, but it's got some. Creepy, it's got some creepy. It's got moments. some creepy moments. It is a it is a Henry Selleck film. But um, but yeah, we would we would love to to have your your child's feedback on this one. That would be a lot of fun. <laughs> Um, over on Facebook, we got three votes for the movie, zero for the, or three votes for the book, zero for the movie, rather. Andy said, I only saw the movie and was a bit sleepy listening to the pod. But if I'm remembering things correctly, the gist is the film versions of key scenes in the book generally tend to be less bloody, less sharp and bland or functional with a cheesy score. And you chose the film so it still manages to be better than the book ouch yeah i again it is because we 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 both struggled with what we were gonna pick it's not like it's an easy this isn't like 50 shades where it's like wow this is just way better than the book like in pretty much every way 
Uh, that is not the case. Yeah, it was, it was really a six of one. Yeah, half a dozen of the other With kind of just situation a edge here going to the films. I, and I think, you know, it, it is true that there's a lot more blood and violence, and that kind of stuff has a little bit more teeth in the book. But I also have kind of a problem in that if you compare it again to the Hunger Games, I can really tell what the point of the violence is That's in the fair, Hunger Games. Yeah. And in this one, it's kind of like... It has a vague point, but I don't really know that no, that's a good that point. violence is being used to make some sort of really solid, yes. tangible point. No. I feel like most of the time I felt like it was just there. It, it, it's there in an attempt to kind of world build, honestly. It, yeah. it, it, it's there for world building in the Divergent series, I think, and, and to set up this the brutality of this world uh, and the brutality of the factions and stuff like that. But yes, it does not have the same point that the Hunger Games does because in in this, the the violence is is at equal times celebrated and sort of horrifying. Like it's it's the Dauntless by their nature are like violent. And the, so the point in the Hunger Games is very clearly that this system of violence that they have created to maintain control is brutal and horrifying yeah. and putting these children through uh, this because it's it, it, in an attempt to like to maintain power, to maintain power is horrifying and it draws parallels to the way we exert violence on classes of people uh, to maintain power in our world, basically. Yeah. This book's depiction of violence doesn't really have that a, a similar point, particularly. Yes. It It is. So I would actually do agree with that, despite the fact that very often a lot of the things I criticized the movie for was not, you know, being as brutal or being as, as sort of um, forthright with the violence that the book is. I do agree that it, it, that maybe there's a, an argument to be made that it do, shouldn't be because the book doesn't seem to have a lot to say about that violence necessarily. Yeah. Whereas the Hunger Games clearly does. And when we were when we were being critical of the Hunger Games movies for removing some of that violence, it was because it it literally kneecaps the point that the book is making. Whereas mm -hmm. here it doesn't That's, as much. Nah. I still think it does a little bit and, and and potentially could, depending on where these books go. It's hard yes. to tell. But it's very clear from moment one in The Hunger Games what what the violence is there for, why it exists, and what it's doing in the narrative and, and thematically. And whereas here, we're still not sure where this is going and what the point of this is going to be. Mm -hmm. Whereas The Hunger Games, it was pretty clear from the beginning. Uh, obviously, it had nuances and it went different directions here and there. But overall... Uh, you know, it's yeah, it's it's about the violence used to control people and and how horrifying that is and and the ways in which people you know can be beaten as blah 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 all those sort of things. Um, so yeah, no, I would, I yeah, I I agree. It doesn't. I don't it's know. it's an interesting distinction. Yeah, I think for sure. Our next comment was from Stephen. Uh, Stephen said, "I barely remember the movie as another meh YA entry, and I never bothered to watch the sequels, but I do remember enjoying the book." The book was also also just another YA entry, but I enjoyed it enough and read the two sequels. Unfortunately, the third failed to really close out the series in a good way. Oh, can't wait. Um, <laughs> it's one of many comments that make me feel very apprehensive about the rest of yes. this series. Yeah. Our last comment on Facebook was from Josh. Um, Josh said, the movie was better than the book, though both are extremely difficult to sit through. The acting in the movie is so terrible, I don't know if I should be laughing at the acting or upset. Interesting. 
I, I would agree. I disagree. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I thought the I mean it's not like award winning. No, no, no. no. I, I don't think anybody deserves an Oscar in this movie. But I. But thought, I thought it was fine. I thought it was mostly fine. There are points where it's a little. There's scenes here and there, mm-hmm. but it's again, it's it's you know this kind of story. There, the dialogue and stuff they're working with is not exactly uh, groundbreaking yeah. already. So you're already gonna have kind of struggling but i i thought when the acting worked which was most of the time it worked pretty well and there was even a few scenes that i thought really stood out um as being really really good again like, we will talk about it more and we've already talked about it at least once that um shayla uh, when uh, tris's mom dies yes is just, yeah yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, regardless of context just a brilliantly acted scene i think uh and brilliantly written which again is not how it is in the book so it was another little you know point we gave to the film but yeah even apart from that i i thought everybody was yeah, pretty good. I, if I if I were to stack up my my complaints about the movie, acting would be like way down at the I, bottom, very very <laughs> like very low. far down yes. at the bottom. Yes. Um, over on Twitter, we had zero votes for the book and ten for the movie. Uh, Kelly Napier said, "I also went with the movie this time. I thought they did a good job of capturing the important parts of the book while dropping the things that aren't needed to drive the plot." The extra initiates that aren't Tris, Peter, Christina, and Will don't need them. Al, she's already missing her brother and parents. She doesn't need another relationship to mourn, or it starts way to weigh down everything. This book feels very much like what it is. Someone's first attempt at doing something. Yeah. Yeah. I think the movie did a good job of cleaning up Roth's weak points from it being her first novel and her not really knowing how to tighten things up. I actually liked in the movie that Triss's mom looks pained after the choosing ceremony Mm. in the movie versus the slight smile in the book. I think it comes back to the fact that moms know their kids and her mom would have realized through the years that she was probably divergent. In my mind, she's grimacing in the movie because she knows Dauntless is not a safe place for her daughter to be if being who you are is dangerous if discovered. But that's that's true. Yeah, that's a fair point. Yes, but that's also true of every faction, it would seem. In this universe, we don't. I mean, we, we we being divergent, seeming we would assume it would be a problem no matter what faction right. you're in. Because she doesn't know about the plot between the Ariadite and the Divergent and the way no, they're working but, together. So, but she does know because her mom is from Dauntless, so she knows that the Dauntless use the simulations all true. the time. That's true, and that the way you behave in the simulations can okay. like out you as being divergent. Okay, I guess that's fair. Yeah, I guess it is possible that if yeah, if if the other factions don't have some sort of similar, because we don't know. Yeah, we don't, we don't know what their, the their factions, initiation so process no is. What their initiation processes look like, uh, and if they do anything else that would you know be able to 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 kind of find out divergence or not so if that's the case then yes i guess that could potentially make sense i i i can see i can see what uh kelly's saying and i don't necessarily entirely disagree but i i disliked it as a as a clue and a tease for who her what Mm -hmm. her mom's story was um kelly went on to say i think the zombie dauntless stuff in the book took place at night but to explain it being light outside in the movie i think it started in the early morning like they would have been sleeping, but it's not the yeah, middle of the night. It starts at like four or five a.m. Uh, by the time they got everyone ready and transported, it would have been light out. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it probably um, makes sense. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, the, the, my problem with that scene in the movie, I think, was that while I, I agree with you that putting a scene like that in the light can make it more horrifying, like you talked about Schindler's List, mm-hmm. um, 
I think that the way the violence and the bloodiness got kneecapped, it being in the light, just like threw that in yeah, sharper no, yeah. relief. Yeah, no, I agree. That's what, yeah, that's what we said in the episode or what you said in the episode. Yeah. This is my second time reading the books and I've seen the movies a few times through the years and it's always bothered me that it's never explained if the other factions limit the number of initiates that actually make it into the faction. Are there rankings and cuts in amity or abnegation? I have to assume not based on the personality of the faction. I, it, we we assume not, at least for ab- yeah. abnegation, based on Triss's kind of surprise at the idea that right. people just get kicked out of Dauntless, yeah. like, willy-nilly seemingly. Yeah. She seems like she you would think she would at least be somewhat familiar with what goes on in abnegation and so this all seems like a surprise to her so you would assume at least there it's either doesn't happen that people don't make it through initiation or it's incredibly rare that mm-hmm. somebody doesn't make it through initiation for some reason yeah and i mean i would i would also assume not in amity yes you would assume the same <laughs> they're, thing they're the nice faction you would assume that i'm just going based on what we can kind <laughs> yes. of get glean would, from would, you know uh, yeah. what is textually supported um i would also assume that erudite and candor don't cut people either because they seem to be the kind of people who would want a lot of people you would think you could see yeah those I think two at I least could, you could i could make an argument for those two over amity or abnegation because amity and abnegation are both all about like kindness and and like selflessness and and blah 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 yeah Yeah. erudite i could see them maybe giving like an iq test and if you don't if yeah you don't hit a certain threshold you get kicked out the only other one we know anything about the induction process is candor Yes. Because Christina talks a little bit about it yeah. in the book. Does, is that where she talks about these lie detector these tests? These lie detector tests. So maybe if you so can't pass like, a lie yeah, detector, so you, can, you can fail. You could fail yes, initiation, perhaps. Yeah. Maybe we'll find out. Yeah. Um, okay, Kelly went on to say, so only Dauntless has initiation as a competition. The faction list must be mostly Dauntless dropouts, if that's the case. That's an interesting point. Um, yeah. And it could be, that would be an interesting thing to explore. Because it does then seem surprising that the Dauntless seem to be so, or the the Factionless seem to be so. I, I will say, I, I really hope the Factionless get explored more in future stories. Oh, I said to you, like, right after we started reading the book, I was like, if this does not end with the Factionless burning it all to the ground, I don't want it. Yes, no, <laughs> I, I agree. But uh, I, I'm hoping we learn more about them and why. Obviously, they're, they're, they're relegated to, like, to a part of society where they're, they don't have a lot of opportunity and stuff. And it's obviously a commentary on like, you know, home homelessness and the people that are, are cast out of society and relegated mm-hmm. to, you know, uh, kind of the worst yeah. of and what... the way that the system creates. Right. Unhoused people. And R- yes, know. but so that's obviously the allegory or the, you know, what we're going for here. But I think the thing that's interesting is that it, I, I was wondering again, because we have seen so little of the factionless and kind of really have only seen them, from afar, they just seem to be like wandering the streets dirty again, as, mm-hmm. as a, a a very thinly veiled, not even thinly veiled, just a very obvious <laughs> um, blank uh, or you know uh, obvious um, in your face allegory for for unhoused people. I, I just want to know why. <laughs> it seems like the people, because very often the people that end up unhoused, you know, there's lots of different scenarios and situations that can lead to that and stuff, but they seem to have their own section of the city with housing and stuff. Like they seem to like go to like an area of the city and they like, there's, we know there's like 
housing, at least to some extent throughout the city, that's not that they could use. And so my question is, it seems like everybody who becomes factionless just immediately in this universe, like gives up and doesn't try to do anything like like I want to know if there's like a factionless like you would think that the people who didn't make it, especially the people who didn't make it into Dauntless, which seems like that's maybe most of who these people Mm -hmm. are, would be the kind of people in this universe again this is where it gets muddy as an allegory for unhoused people because it's way more complicated but seemingly in this universe as this allegory you would think the kind of people that if you're if you're trying to get into dollars or whatever and you and you, you you flunked out or you didn't fa- make it in and now you're factionless i just i don't get why all those people seemingly just like immediately just start They're living like, on the street oh well. and give up yeah yeah why, i don't know you would think well, that the factionless especially... would be like a like almost become like a if they're mostly dauntless would yeah. like be like form like rebel factions and like would try to like tear the system down or something like it just seems yeah, like would, I don't, uh, well and especially because it uh, ostensibly it even includes like dauntless born yeah initiates who don't make the 10 percent cut or right, whatever yeah. it is yeah well that's what i mean yeah and and even if not then you you have people that have from the others the other factions so you would have people with maybe more rounded skill sets it just I and again, it's hard to know because I don't. We we just don't know anything, and so maybe they do. Maybe there is a thriving like maybe yeah. the, what we've seen of the factionless is kind of just the surface level that most of the people in you know the other factions see. But there is maybe a more thriving or robust, interesting. Maybe that's the series district thirteen. Yeah, maybe, maybe they maybe. have an underground. Maybe I don't <laughs> where know. they're just living a normal society. Yes, it's just because. <laughs> Very often, and I guess that's what I'm getting at, and I'm not an expert on unhoused and homeless people and stuff like that, but it, very often the people that end up homeless or unhoused or what have you, it's you, very often from because of things like addiction, because of things like um, uh, unemployment or mental health, mental health mm-hmm. severe mental health issues, um, severe uh, uh, debt that causes them and forces them into this that then often coincides with other things. It's usually a lot of comorbid conditions between like mental health issues um uh, obviously poverty caused by the fucking fucked up system we exist in lots of things and so seemingly in the universe of divergent the people who end up factionless aren't coming from a place of those causes yeah so it seems strange to me that they so quickly fall into like our universe's version of unhoused people does that make sense at all like like i don't understand how you have a bunch of people who are seemingly mentally healthy uh you know uh, or um physically healthy they're just not the best of the best of the best with honor sir for dauntless and stuff like and other groups or whatever or like you know they, they they couldn't pass every single perfect lie detector test or whatever for candor and then as soon as they're factionless they just don't what I, what happens and i don't know and maybe there's some other reasons maybe maybe erudite's doing something where they're literally like yeah maybe there's they're they're poisoning their food supplies or maybe they're doing something that is causing them and, and or maybe that's the point is that literally just being divested of the societal structure that exists in this world disenfranchises them in such a way that it, it becomes nearly impossible for them to like create a cohesive society or anything like that that has its own sort of support structures and stuff i don't know and i'm just interested to see where it goes because it feels like it doesn't 
it, it feels like she's making this allegory that doesn't match with the the material conditions that create right. the material conditions that create unhoused people in in the yeah. we, in Western society in our world right now feel very different than the material conditions that create the factionless in the, the Divergent series. And I don't know why they somehow manifest the same way, I guess, is yeah. my point. I, I, don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where she's going with that. I will say I do not have a lot of faith that we're no. going to get like a, a nuanced and uh, poignant depiction. I agree. <laughs> I agree. I just. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Um, okay. I should have said that for a main episode. That was way too long of a... Yeah. Um, so, okay, Kelly went on to say, thank you for pointing out that Tris would have known who 4 was when she got there. That was so ridiculous. I do love the fact that these books expressly state that the story takes place in the Chicago area. I noted when y'all did The Hunger Games that it bothered me to know that the story took place in the dystopian United, former United States but not to know what states the district comprised geographically. Yeah, we talked about how we wished mm -hmm. there was like a map or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the author is very clear about it being Chicago, and I appreciate it because it helped me build the visual picture in my brain as I'm reading. My favorite part in the movie is one that doesn't take place in the book. It's when she's doing the zip lining and almost smashes into the wall when the brakes fail. I like the movie increasing the idea of the constant peril that Triss is facing. She can't even relax to enjoy herself because death is all, literally always lurking. Even the Dauntless seemed relieved that she was able to stop at the last second. When she did it in the book without consequence, I was left wondering what we were supposed to take away from that scene. I, I imagine it's just that the act of ziplining from the top of a very tall building is itself inherently D dangerous, dangerous and, and, and also exhilarating exhilarating and and less so that there's like a specific like you know oh if you don't stop in time at the end you'll crash into a wall and die it's more so you this the cable could snap you yeah could you fall, your harness could second. break you could fall yeah. whatever um it's you know the idea of bungee jumping or whatever skydiving mm -hmm. um it's not necessarily that you have to but I, I can see what you're saying that it is an added layer of yeah for sure danger um, I imagined Dauntless HQ being in an old abandoned hotel, one of those where all the rooms face into the into a giant atrium in the middle, hmm. or maybe an old mall, just someplace already existing that would have the logical space for a giant pit and chasm in the middle of it. I do think that that is basically what it, it's it's some it's just some sort of yeah either hotel or old office yeah some building some or building something. that had like an atrium feature yeah at some point yeah um, so TLDR. I'm voting for the movie without spoiling anything that probably won't hold through the next two installments. Great. Fantastic. <laughs> Love to hear that. Uh, next comment was from Adam Wick, who said the movie, if only because it's a much shorter ordeal. There you go. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's fair. similar to how I felt. Uh, last comment on Twitter was from Shelby's in her capybara era. Uh, Shelby said, I have a long history with this one. I saw the movie in theaters just because and thought it was fine. The first time I read it, I enjoyed it in a just-don't-think-about-it way. The second time, I had read the sequels, and I was very familiar with the author's favorite trope. No spoilers, but it's not one I particularly care for. It's subtle in this one if you don't know, what to, if you don't know to look for it, but when you know, it's retroactively obvious. 
This time, I was reading Divergent post-pandemic, and a lot of things I used to brush off as eccentricities I no longer have the patience for. I can't help noticing that this story is about two siblings from an idealized, if extreme, conservative background leaving home to explore their own interests. One of them joins the militia faction. It's dark and edgy, but also cool, brave, and empowering. Sure, there's corruption, but that's just a few bad apples. Her pacifist dad even realizes that there's a time and place for guns. The other sibling joins the faction that believes ignorance is the root of all evil. This faction's rotten to the core, and he should be ashamed of his thirst for knowledge. Their evil plan is literally an injection that somehow mind controls you. Then there's the divergence. These multifaceted free thinkers who confront science and say, this isn't real, I don't have to participate, I can't be controlled. I met these divergents as an essential worker throughout the pandemic. Why, yes, this book did leave me feeling salty. Whatever gave it away. On a lighter note, I think you will be pleasantly surprised by how at least one of your predictions turns out. <laughs> what a tease. <laughs> I picked the movie for two reasons. First, the mom's death scene has stayed with me. I sometimes forget what movie it's from, but I remember that scene. That's a very good scene. Second, the movie remembers that this is the fun installment of the trilogy and keeps that energy throughout. It kind of drops off in the book. Yeah, I can see that a little bit. Mm -hmm. I, the movie stays fun. I, I thought the book was mostly fun throughout as well, like as fun as it could be, I guess. I do think there's definitely something interesting to the idea that it seems like, at least so far, the Dauntless are presented as flawed in some minor ways, but good generally mm -hmm. like pretty okay and that does and that the area diet that does not seem to be the case yes it seems to be they're just all evil they're just evil yeah and it's not like oh actually you know it's actually mostly what they're doing is good it's just been corrupted by by a know, couple people by caitlin's litter whatever um <laughs> it doesn't seem that the books are saying that which is is very strange mm -hmm. <laughs> and does make me worried for the the morality tale that this this story will ultimately weave because it does uh, i do find it questionable because it does we were talking about it seems like the point should be and maybe is going to be hey these factions are dumb everybody should be everything blah 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 and even i mean it seems like tobias is stating essentially the thesis when he's like i don't want to be just one thing i want to mm -hmm. be everything it seems like it that's, does feel like a it thesis does feel statement. like a thesis statement but we have yet to see any redeeming qualities in the erudite or mm -hmm. any inclination that any of our characters think there's anything to be redeemed yeah in the erudite faction it seems like we really only think like dauntless and abnegation have anything worth going on like <laughs> I, but again we all are, are also only currently kind of seeing the perspective of a character who grew up in abnegation and went to Dauntless. Mm -hmm. So we don't really have those other perspectives necessarily. We have, you know, a little bit from like Christina who was candor and blah, 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 but it's all very minimal and it's all filtered right. through our I main character the, going, the, that's weird. And I don't like it. Yeah. And <laughs> I think the closest thing we have to any kind of like redeeming moment with erudite is will. Cause will was a transfer from erudite. Right. He's dead. Yes, we killed so, him. We, so, yeah, we killed him. So, <laughs> we shot him in the face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'll be interested to see where it goes. Yeah. Cause, like, yeah, that is an interesting, definitely an interesting point that 
it, it, despite what we seemingly feel like maybe the series is ultimately kind of going to say, it doesn't so far have anything nice to say about the smart, brainy, thinky people. So I don't know. <laughs> okay, so over on Instagram, we had five votes for the book and seven for the movie. Um, Layden Coolidge said, this one is an easy choice. My vote goes to the movie. I listened to the audiobook, and while I did enjoy the story, I thought the descriptions of the world, buildings, guns, clothes, etc., were severely lacking. The movie, on the other hand, was able to show the world of Divergent through its visuals. The, politi the political aspect about framing Beatrice's father is more engaging in the movie uh, than waiting ten or more chapters for it to happen in the book. The side characters in the book were one-dimensional in service of the main character moving forward in the story. In the movie, some of them were more memorable than others. Beatrice's mom and dad, Janine, Eric, and Christine. Peter, I thought, was pretty tame compared to his book counterpart. Al is just there, and Caleb was pointless. Forrest's personality in the movie is better and more believable than the book, since all the tough-talk 18-year-old Forrest speaks is laughable if you think about it. Like, age doesn't matter. So many sex jokes I could write. I don't remember him saying that. I don't remember that <laughs> don't either. Really, maybe he does, and I just don't yeah. recall. Triss is more relatable in the book since we're in her head and feel everything she's going through before it comes tedious with her judgy personality and getting angry even for small things like a piece of advice. She's a moody teenager. She's, I try to forgive yeah. some of that. You know, you, you got to try to put yourself in the framework at least a little bit of what this character is, who they are, mm -hmm. and why they behave a little bit the way they do. So, yes, she is a little judgy, a little I was also obnoxious. a little judgy yes, and obnoxious yes. as a 16-year-old. I try to, you know, <laughs> kind of remember that as an older person reading a story about a, a younger person. Uh, Tris in the movie is just fine, but at least her and Four didn't shag right away, and their relationship feels more believable in the movie, which for me was an improvement. Um, I don't know... I don't know if maybe I'm not understanding the use of shag here because they definitely don't have sex in the book. Not 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 at all in the book and definitely not yeah. right away. And maybe they yeah. they kiss quite a bit. But not not even for a long time. No. It's in the book is very, you know, purity culture, yes. courtshipy. Like they take I yeah, I'm not exactly sure what because I I'm 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 like under the impression that I know what what, what shag means because that's oh, yes. more of like British slang yeah no that just than means American sex, slang yes. yeah see that's what I that's what I think yeah I don't know hmm, they said they listened to audiobook maybe they I wonder if it was a translation maybe and maybe, maybe there's there a, like translation a translation issue, issue yeah or something yeah because in the book they don't have sex at all let mm -hmm. alone right away mm -mm. <laughs> if that's what you're saying here and that was different than the movie it does not happen in either so i don't know um if you read this far i have questions about the factionless in both the book and the movie so do we so do, you, As do we ever evidenced by my rant um if the factionless exist why are there no bounty hunters and criminals or are the factionless only reduced to poor people and even oh, okay. if the bounty hunters and criminals exist, are they considered more as divergents? I, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I guess trying to figure out what, again, I, I think this is maybe translated. So maybe we're trying to kind of sus. Maybe it's yeah. a little bit lost in translation here. But I assume what they're saying is, it, you know, if the factionless, assuming the factionless exists as portrayed, 
it, we also seems like there's no crime or, or yeah. anything. And you would think if you had this large population of completely disenfranchised people. Right. You would have who crime. are who are intentionally kept incredibly yes, poor. Intentionally kept. Yeah. The lack of crime, I think, is interesting. I will say I don't know if there is a lack of crime. The only I, I we we don't know. But I will say that's a failing of the book and the movie. It is a lack of there's a failing in world building potentially there. Right. But we, we, we know there's no crime supposedly in abnegation right but so we don't know if there's any crime period true. like we don't know so yeah right as far as the narrator that we're in the perspective of knows yeah. there's no crime maybe we she never addresses it there's true. no crime in the abnegation factions like little compoundy you know their little uh their little ticky tacky houses they're freaking um you know mcmansions or whatever there, there's no crime there uh-huh. she just doesn't address at all yes what the crime is like in the rest of the world you know what i mean like right. we just don't know right so it's either it's either a failure it, it, like it, it is a failure of world building but like if there's intentionally no crime in this world building then i would like to know more about that yeah and if we don't then that's another failure of world building i guess is what i'm saying Uh, yeah i guess yeah Uh, overall neither the book nor movie are that memorable but if i had to pick one i would much rather watch the movie than listen to the audiobook again Mm. and i'll be joining you for the rest of the series that's fun excellent Uh, other comment on Instagram was from Jane Rendleman, um, who said, I'm choosing the movie purely on the fact that it gets me through the story faster. There we go. Another one of those. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. And we have one last comment over on Instagram. This one came in just under the wire. We had already finished recording, actually. So I'm going to be handling this one by myself as I was finishing up the edit today uh, just for everybody in, in the future or, you know, just so people know. Generally, we record on Monday nights. Usually we record on Monday nights. Um, that's central time zone U.S. generally. But uh, sometimes it's Tuesday night. So sometimes if you send us a message or post a comment on Tuesday, uh, you know, following the uh, the main episode week or whatever, um, sometimes we'll be able to get to it. Other times we won't. But if we see them like this, I, th- I did this recently for another comment like I don't know, a handful of weeks ago where it came in a little bit late after we had already recorded. So I came in and just read it and addressed it myself. So let's get to it. We had to get to this one because it's from one of my best friends from high school, uh, a, a, a groomsman in my wedding, uh, Mr. Dr. John Pauly. John, all right, here's what he had to say over on Instagram. It won't let me post a comment for some reason. So here's a DM. I think that was one of the issues as well. <laughs> I have to 100% agree that both the book and movie are incredibly mid, but the movie rounds out a number of the themes that the book couldn't, so I have to give it to the movie. This was a series I've been intrigued about for years, but never knew anyone that had actually seen or read it, and now I know why. Does this series have the narrowest range of an audience for any of the quote-unquote popular YA series? I think it does. I think this is probably, I don't know if it's the least, but it's definitely among the ones that, you know, made it into movies it's got to be it's definitely less than twilight hunger games harry potter you know pick your your poison a maze runner might be less i don't know would be the only other one that it would i think would be close is the maze runner series which i also know zero things about but it's definitely in uh, a lower tier i would say moving on paulie said 
Its multiple depictions of extreme violence raises the bottom age of appropriateness, but its incredibly generic perception of how different people choose to act would be blown by anyone who's attended freshman college or freshman orientation at college. I agree with that. <laughs> Which supposedly Veronica Roth did before writing this, but you know. So considering this is a series specifically for kids like 14 to 18, it still kind of sucks. It advertises a plot of sci-fi government conspiracy, but delivers a plot solely of one individual's character development character development with a small side of sci-fi. Roth must have known someone high up to get this, her first novel bought by a major movie studio basically as soon as it was published. It could be that. My other speculation is more so that um one, I think it it had the pre-sales did well, it got with whatever, something with publishing, I don't know how that world whole whole world works. But I think the most important thing is we are right peak in the in the frenzy of Hunger Games, Twilight, all of the, the the YA movie boom of the early 2010s. This they were studios were looking for anything that they thought they could make a bunch of money on. So I'm I'm fairly certain that is a <laughs> plays a big component in it. Uh, as for why it became such a popular book, I'm not exactly sure. Again, we're still in that big boom of YA fantasy, sci-fi, dystopia stuff. They thought they were found their next Hunger Games, I think, is, is really what it was. I agreed, uh, going on, Polly says, I agreed that the world building was very lacking, but my biggest issues was that I don't know anyone's motivation for anything. Why is Dauntless so revered? What do they do that the other, other than be assholes to literally everyone and look cool? Why does Ford just not do anything about the crap Dauntless is doing? He's been offered leadership many times, but keeps turning it down so he can look from the side and shake his head. I, that I will agree. I don't know. I'm I'm thinking there's maybe some that does get expanded on a little bit in the book from my memory. I can't recall of why he I think it's partially because he was. Oh, I think the explanation and I could be wrong about this, but I, this is my and I may just be making this up. I think part of this, the reason justification for him, you know, not trying to take a leadership role and change things or affect things is that he is divergent and didn't want to get caught. I think he thought if he, you know, got into a leadership position, maybe that would require some more testing or more, you know, more scrutiny on him that would result in him being outed as divergent. Potentially, I don't know. That's <laughs> the main thing I can think. Because otherwise, yeah, he seems to hate everything they're doing or, or the news direction they're going, but just kind of like sits around and is like, this sucks. Maybe we'll find out there was some secret plan all along that he was a part of or something. Who knows? Why does Janine even do what she did? Her faction seems to want for nothing, and they give no evidence that abnegation is actually doing anything wrong. Why does this faction system entrapped in this wall locked from the outside even exist? Yeah, I mean, there's it's definitely a flimsy plot that is <laughs> kind of asking you not to look too closely at it, I think. Um, so yeah, it's it's not, you know, not the sturdiest of foundations. You both covered most of the holes in this, but thank you for also noting that it makes no sense for Triss and Tobias to not know each other. That drove me crazy. Yes, it drove us crazy as well. And one thing I will point out that I didn't hear you mention is that while there are annoyingly overt Christian themes throughout that I rolled my eyes at, the author did also include child abuse by the leader of the quote-unquote Christian faction that is boldly, boldly ignored by many, and at least through this book, caused no consequences to that person of power, even though the accusations ended up being true. Good show, bad book. I assume he's saying good show is in our show. Thank you, Polly. Good show, bad book. Looking forward to the deep character development of girl's short haircut in the next movie. Oh no, does she get her hair cut short in the next movie? I don't I literally haven't looked up or know anything about what happens with this series, so 
I haven't even seen like posters or trailers or anything from the future movies as blind as you could possibly be uh, about <laughs> about where this series goes. But I'm excited for short haired Triss if we get it. That could be fun. Uh, and yeah, I, I we also were were wondering if, you know, the fact that Marcus uh, was literally physically abusing his son is going to come back. It doesn't seem like the book approves of it necessarily uh you know it is presented as a bad thing tris calls him out and yells at him about it in the book doesn't really in the movie uh, that part kind of gets glossed over uh which we did mention but i do think eventually uh that will be addressed i i, I truly hope at least that it's not going to be <laughs> that this book is not going to be doing child abuse apologia i hope i don't think it is but we'll see you never know the the twists and turns these summer series takes can take can sometimes be uh surprising shall we say so thank you very much for that comment Polly. always appreciated uh sorry katie wasn't here she's actually out running errands right now but i just needed to wrap this up so i could get this edit done hope uh my 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 soul my lonely commentary on your <laughs> on your message was adequate and over on goodreads we had one listener who couldn't decide uh, that listener was miko our miko, goodreads our friend goodreads. <laughs> champion <laughs> uh, miko said divergent was somewhat better than i expected based on its reputation although i think most of the slander is aimed at the sequels but still i still did not find much value in it it's good to know i wasn't the only one laughing at the train chasing music yes oh my goodness <laughs> so bad i feel the movie i feel the book starts better than the movie as we are privy to all of Triss's thoughts so her actions like choosing dauntless feel more justified that's fair i can see that mm -hmm. potentially it's uh, we talked about this it's so hard to know when you've read the book yeah how much how, this how is that really translates. It's, uh, sometimes it's not as hard to kind of figure yes. that out with this one I, it feels really difficult yeah. to me to try to like look at the movie and figure out like how much of this yeah is is decipherable to someone yeah. who has and not read the one book. of the reasons that very you know the whole premise of the show is around one of us not reading the books mm -hmm. usually that is you know one of the the you know i don't want to say failings but it is one of the things about the summer series that is a little you know different than normals we don't have that perspective um because we didn't we didn't want to force anybody to watch these movies <laughs> To be honest, we didn't want to try to ask one of our friends to to watch these movies uh, on our behalf this time. So, however, the movie ends stronger, and just after watching it, I would have probably given this to the movie. But the more I think about it, the less sure I am. Had I not read the book first, I'm sure the movie would have come across more confusing. For example, as a person I subjected to the movie found it weird that Tris got a bird tattoo when it seems birds are one of her See, fears. That totally makes uh, sense. Yeah, yeah. Upon, yeah. The movie is missing both explanations that the tattoo symbolizes her family members and that the attacking birds in the simulation are her fear of losing control. And so those aren't really connected. Yes, which is very strange, I thought, in the book as well. Like it's just mm -hmm. like, it's kind of a confusing, okay, so she gets a tattoo of these ravens but then in, but then she's attacked by like, crows yeah and it's, okay yeah it's it's a it's, yeah it was already a little weird in the book at least but there was an explanation for what those things meant that the movie mm -hmm. just completely omits um i disagree about the shooting of will trish shoots multiple people in the limbs like eric and some nameless zombie but her mind-controlled friend an intentional headshot 
It's because he's erudite. He's evil. Yes. Um, also, are the Dauntless so incompetent they don't te- teach to aim at the center of mass? Veronica Roth doesn't did not did, do yeah, research no, on anything. On anything. Basically. On nothing. So I that's she wrote from her heart. Yes. Yeah. And then none of her editors said, "No, oh, yeah. wait a minute." Yeah, because I actually had that thought in that moment of like, "Well, you wouldn't sh- shouldn't have shot him in that." But it's also sometimes you tweak those things just for dr- dramatic effect. Yes. Like it's you know whatever. Yes, obviously if you're a a, a highly trained military like wing of this you know faction within this universe, they would they would understand that generally good idea to shoot center mass because you're more likely to hit your target and blah, blah, blah. Like, well, and it's, you know, there's plenty of, you don't need to, don't aim for the head. That's stupid. But like in the dr- drama of the moment, that's why you use that. Cause it's just a more impactful mm-hmm. when she says the line, I, you know, I, the bullet hit him in the, in the head because that's where I was aiming. It's more dramatic than I, it, not that much more than the bullet hit him in the chest. Cause that's where I was aiming, but whatever. Still, it, you know, there's, I don't disagree. I also don't disagree that it, it is a little funny that she apparently needs to shoot him in the head. And After she just maimed multiple other people. Yeah. yeah. That's fair. I don't Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Miko went on to say, in the movie, she tries to yell and snap him out of the mind control. And when that doesn't work, she has to shoot. The book version read so clearly as I got to quickly kill my friend. So I have repercussions in the sequel that I groaned while in the movie. I felt Triss was going with the only available option. It could still be bloodier on that. I agree. I think that was my main note is that it just feels again, like the stakes of what she's doing here aren't as amplified as they are in the book. When she shoots Will in the face in the book, I felt horrible because I liked Will and I didn't like that. She had to shoot him. And I agree that the movie maybe does a slightly better job in the scene of like elevating to the point where she Mm -hmm. feels like she has to shoot him. But again, I think there's just something that I don't know. Again, maybe the (laughs) series isn't saying anything interesting with it, but the, the idea of depicting the, the brutally violent acts that, that are occurring in this world as brutally violent and awful feels true and honest to me. Whereas kind of, portraying them as like oh she shot him and he just kind of slumped over maybe he's alive i don't know feels again it's implied he's dead but like the the bloodless sort of clean sanitized Mm -hmm. version of the violence we get in the movies just feels like we don't have the same level of it just doesn't feel like it it just feels like you're sanitizing the violence because you can't show the violence because it's a PG 13 movie Mm -hmm. when it does feel like, again, maybe not as as solid of a point uh, or as clear and and obvious of a point of as like the hunger games of what the violence is doing in that it still feels like there's at least some layer to this of the horrible things that she's going through are horrible and they should feel horrible. Whereas in the movie, it just sanitizes it just enough in some of these instances where it doesn't feel that horrible yeah. and I feel like it should feel horrible. I don't know. I, I, yeah. End of Miko's comment. Uh, but all my other critiques are minor compared to my underlying grievance with the story. I do not believe for a second that this I, world could I work. Would I would that, agree yes. with that. Yes. <laughs> the world building feels so unfinished that I don't even have to pull a thread to see it unravel. Like, what does candor even do as a full fifth of the population lawyers? Because <laughs> they do mention them yeah. working in the legal system. But yeah it's, yeah, it's like how many. And, and again, this is and the like, thing. 
where's the crime? What are the lawyers doing? Well, there is crime. Again, I don't know why everybody thinks there's no crime. There's no implication in the series that there's no crime. There's, there's no, no crime. implication that there is crime. But why would you assume there isn't? There's only no crime in abnegation. She says, I believe she says, because I thought I saw somebody else say this too. And I was like, I, I don't, I did not get the vibe at all from the book that this is a crimeless world. Abnegation Nobody in abnegation has killed or 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 like committed a violent crime in years or decades or whatever because they're specifically or at least that we know of has committed any violent crimes or whatever because their faction specifically is so dead set on being so selfless and blah 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 or whatever. I have no reason to think that the other factions don't do all kinds of fucked up crime and shit. Like there's <laughs> I just don't know. I don't know why. Anyways, sorry. But I agree, you don't need that many lawyers. I don't know what else, because I do agree with that. Well, I don't know what candor does. Uh, yeah, all. I don't know what they're about. I'm not sure. Like, what is the, yeah, what, oh, they're very truthful. Okay. Okay. Also, they wouldn't be lawyers. I don't understand what that, <laughs> like, what, <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. I. It's just, oh, like, oh, I get it. They're, 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 the idea is that they're the best, like, they're actually good lawyers, I mm -hmm. get Like, they're, they're good for, they're the platonic ideal of lawyers or something. But, like, it, but even then, that's not how the laws, that's not how the judicial system works. You actually have, you want zealous advocates for your client. And that may include, in fact, lying, kind of. Withholding the With, truth. Withhold, like, yeah. if you know your client is guilty. You your, still, your, your job as their lawyer is, is to create reasonable doubt. Or, and, 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 and like, and maybe you can argue more morally that's not great, but like the way the system of, and again, we don't know how the law system here works. Right, but maybe it's completely different. If you have an adversarial law system, you actually do want lawyers that will argue for their client even if they know they're guilty. Like that's yes. the point of an adversarial legal system. You actually want that. Now, whether or not you want the, the adversarial legal system we have, I don't know. I'm not a fucking law philosopher. I just, but like, <laughs> or legal philosopher. But like, I, I'm just saying within the system, assuming their system operates like ours, you actually want lawyers to lie sometimes, or at least to some extent. Like you need lawyers that are willing to go up there and be like, my client's innocent, even if they know they're not. Mm -hmm. That's how the system operates. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know, because... Yeah, I don't I don't know what candor would what would they do? I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> Hopefully we find out. Um okay, if I cared more, I could probably decide which version is better, but for now it's a tie. They're just meh in slightly different ways. No. What's wrong with Amity? You can't know. I disagree, Miko. Give no, me one the, thing. The book versus the movie. Oh, I thought they were saying of the factions. <laughs> no. Okay, so if I cared more, I could probably decide which version. I thought they were talking about yeah. the factions. They could decide which faction no. is better. My bad. My apologies. <laughs> it's like, it's obviously Amity. <laughs> but yes, um, fair enough. <laughs> also, the fence is a straight up um, Duga radar. I looked this up. It's 100% what it is. Yeah. It's, a, it's a, a specific radar that the Soviets built in the 60s and yeah. then used through the 80s. I uh, yeah, uh, Duga radar used by the Soviet Union around the 80s. So clearly they just picked a cool looking design without thinking why it would look like that in the movie's world. It would be really interesting if it came back and in fact they needed that radar system for something because yeah. although it wouldn't make any sense, I will say this, it makes no sense because they clearly have technology well beyond... This is like right. a, a radar array from the 60s that is like this big, gigantic <laughs> wall of 
things putting out radio say, or you know mm-hmm. signals or whatever. Uh, specifically, the Duga radar from what I did like the most minimal like five minutes of reading earlier today. Um, it, it was designed specifically as like a missile defense system to like f- mm-hmm. to detect incoming like aerial missiles or whatever. Mm. Um, and so you could. I guess we don't know that that's not a threat. Sure. My point would, because uh, that's what I was thinking at first. I was like, oh, maybe, the, you know, maybe it makes sense that they would have yeah. this, like, for this some thing. reason. But they also have, like, super computers that can run crazy advanced yes. VR simulations that. Right. Uh, so, like, okay, what is the, again, this falls back to the world building of, like, what is the technology <laughs> level here? We have this radar system from the seven. This is the books or the movie's fault, I guess. It's not in the book, but right. you have this radio radar system from the 70s. And then we have supercomputers from the future. What was I mean, in the book, it's just a chain link fence. Yes. So yes. Fair enough. That's what I'm saying. This isn't necessarily a problem in the book, but in the movie, it is like, okay, well, what are we doing here? But you're right. that Because I looked it up. That's 100% what it is. So I'd be interested to see if they do anything with that or if it's just like, this is a cool looking thing. Looks cool. It looks cool. Yep. Okay, so our winner this week in the listener polls was the movie with 18 votes to the book's nine, plus three listeners who couldn't decide. There you go, the movie. One, uh, listeners agreed with us, generally speaking, which is interesting. All right, thank you all very much for providing us all that lovely feedback on Divergent. Now, we're going to preview... James and the Giant Peach by Roald Dahl. From Walt Disney Pictures. Hop on, James! Comes the wildest. Holy shipwreck! Weirdest. You enormous bugs! Fascinating, isn't it? Most exciting motion picture adventure of the year. He's gonna cut me in half! James and the Giant Peach. James and the Giant Peach is a children's novel written in 1961 by British author Roald Dahl, as you mentioned. Dahl dedicated the book to his six-year-old daughter, Olivia, um, who died from complications of measles only a year after the book was published. Um, Yeah, that was before the vaccine. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, aside from the film that we'll be discussing, James and the Giant Peach has also been adapted as a stage musical. Uh, it has been done as a puppet show, and there was a celebrity charity reading of it in 2020. Like a COVID thing? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I was yeah. wondering. I, was, I assumed that's what it was. Um, in 2023, the novel was part of a controversy. Oh! That was surrounding part of it. oh we get to talk about this yes. i didn't know we we're ever gonna get to talk yeah, about this uh, revisions of several of Roald Dahl's books i was gonna do this as a separate learning thing segment but then i literally only had like three book notes so i was like i don't oh, think we've put talked it in about here. this have we no i don't think we have i wonder if we agree i wonder if I we do we, i bet we do but <laughs> we'll, I, we'll let's, find <laughs> let's find out let's find out uh, on on February nineteenth, twenty twenty three, Puffin Books, which is an imprint of Penguin, uh, announced that it would be altering the language used in many of Dahl's books to expurgate what they deemed derogatory words and passages, um, effectively rewriting portions of many of Dahl's children's novels, uh, changing the language to, in the publisher's words, quote, ensure that it continu- can continue to be enjoyed by all today. Um, Side note here, quick definition, um, expurgation, 
sometimes also called boulderization, um, is a form of censorship that involves purging anything deemed offensive from an artistic work or writing, media, etc. Um, so Dahl's works have pretty much always received criticism for offensive elements, especially in regard to uh, racism and anti-Semitism, as well as sexism and fat phobia. Uh, if you'd like to hear a more in-depth discussion of that, we covered it in our prequel episode to The Witches in 2021. Um, so I'm not going to rehash all yeah. of it. Um, but if you want to hear a little bit more about um, kind of the criticisms of his works and the elements that are often criticized, we did cover that more in depth in our prequel to The Witches. Um, but uh, in this particular case, uh, the expurgation process um, done by Puffin Books was conducted um, by the use of sensitivity readers uh, with multiple changes regarding Dahl's depiction of race, sex, and character. A report from the British newspaper The Telegraph um, determined that Puffin Books altered hundreds of passages in Dahl's work, um, including his most popular and well-known works like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Matilda, Fantastic Mr. Fox, The Witches, and James and the Giant Peach. Um, in James and the Giant Peach, more than 70 changes were made to the text, um, such as removing references to Aunt Sponge as fat, changing queer to strange, removing references to skin color, um, such as his face was white with horror, looking white and thin, and the earthworm's lovely pink skin as well as changing cloud men to cloud people. This process was met with sharp <laughs> criticism um, from readers, from censorship, from censorship watch groups, um, and from public figures, including many high-profile authors. Um, in an interview with Newsnight, author Margaret Atwood said uh, of the censorship, quote, good luck with Roald Dahl. You're just really going to have to replace the whole book if you want things to be nice. Um, the backlash was so intense that on February 23rd, four days later, uh, Puffin Books announced that Dahl's original publications would be released alongside the expurgated versions as the Rolled Dahl Classic Collection, um, but it did not retract the revisions. Mm -hmm. uh, Dahl's publishers in the United States, France, and the Netherlands announced that they had declined to incorporate the changes. Um, so it was really only, it was like basically mainly the British imprint yeah. that did this. That's the end of your notes. That is the end. What of do you notes. think about this? I think this is the wrong approach. Yes. Okay. Good. <laughs> we agree. Yes. I figured we would agree on this, but I wasn't sure. Um, you know, I I'm a white woman. Yeah. And I cannot speak to the kind of harm that is caused by uh racist depictions, anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. etc. My opinion on it. Is you can speak to it, you just that, can't speak to it from a place of Yes, I, I, I can't speak to it yes. from a place of personal experience. Yeah. However, I have long held the belief that when you read any kind of work, any kind of work of, of media, really, it doesn't have to be a book. It could be a movie. It could be a TV show. It could be anything. Mm -hmm. You are not just consuming a piece of entertainment. You are also consuming a historical document. Yeah. You are consuming something that reflects the norms and the values of the time in which it was written and in which it was published. And I think that 
when especially older pieces of media contain elements that we find distasteful today, I think it is really, really important to have conversations Mm -hmm. about that and to be candid and to really dig into it and discuss it and pull it apart. And I think that changing the media robs us of the opportunity to even do that. Yes. No, I agree entirely with that. I think it's very dumb, um, this particular instance of it. I think, uh, I do think it's maybe more complicated than some people that I've seen discussing it, that I saw discussing it back when this went down uh, months ago. I think there's, you can make an argument potentially that it's, you may want in some situations, in some circumstances, to present a version of a story that is edited in some way for the audience you are presenting it to. So maybe, but it it was very context dependent. I guess what I'm thinking is um, I could see the argument if you want to, and maybe the argument is you just don't teach these things. I don't know. Maybe you don't teach. So here, this is taking this away from this real quick, because it's a more concrete example. Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Mm hmm. Let's just say they release, which they probably have, a version that just does not have the N-word at all. Mm -hmm. Not a single, but everything else about the story is identical. It's literally just, we don't use that word in the book. It's just every time it's there, it's either replaced somehow or, you know, whatever. But everything else about the book is the same. I don't know that I think that, that it would be bad necessarily to have that version in some contexts. In like classrooms and stuff. But it should only be exist in context of acknowledging what the original was probably. So I guess my point is, and maybe again, maybe the argument is maybe we just don't teach that book. Maybe we don't have our, because I read that book in fifth grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. We read Mm -hmm. an unedited. I don't remember what it was. I was young. We read an unedited. No, it was high school. Probably. Yeah. I was going to say I read it in high school. I think it was like high school. We read an unedited version of that book. Yeah. And, I could see the argument for, and obviously we discussed it. We discussed Mm -hmm. the language used and all stuff. And I think that's probably the best course, but I could also see the argument that maybe you still don't want, like if you're in a context where there's a classroom with maybe a minority of black kids in that class, Mm -hmm. you don't want a whole bunch of people just reading the N word out loud in class or I don't know. I can see an argument for. I I can see that argument. I I also think. If I were, I would, I would never have my students read it out loud. No, 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 not obviously not read. Okay. Sorry. Maybe that wasn't the right, maybe not read it out loud, but, but I could even see wanting to, cause the, the book itself is very obviously anti-racist, at least Mm -hmm. to some extent, as much as maybe possible in, you know, for 1800s or whenever Twain wrote it. And so I think there's valuable messages and stuff in the book, but I could see the, uh, I could understand not wanting for certain age ranges, not wanting maybe let's maybe not have them have a book that has the N word in it 800 times or whatever. Mm -hmm. But also I don't necessarily know if I agree with that or not, but I I guess I'm trying to make like the best case scenario for maybe editing something. But I also think that would be within, you would also do that. You would also say, were you to use that version? You would also go, Oh, by the way, like you as part of a class or something, you would say the original version of this uses a slur that we do not use anymore. That is not an acceptable form or 
um, word to use that blah, blah, blah. You would have a conversation about it, and then mm-hmm. maybe you read a version that doesn't have the slur in it 800 times or whatever. Yeah. Maybe. In this instance, though, I think it's a little bit different. Um, primarily, I think, because, yeah, you just, you're literally, you're just whitewashing yeah. and, and the, 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 <laughs> what, the material. Like, you're literally just pretending that just the problems pretend, don't you're, exist. Yes, you're pretending that it's nicer than it is. Yes. And and some some of the examples, I there's a bunch of examples on the Wikipedia page about this whole controversy, and some of them are fucking stupid. Oh yes, a lot of them like, are very a dumb. A lot of them are very very stupid. dumb, and it's also very clear that this was done in an attempt f- by the publishers to be able to keep selling these books. Yes, absolutely. And that's that's the other part of it is like what you should do. Like I think what the obvious thing to do here is if you're the publisher is if if you want to keep selling the books or you act if you actually want to address the issues you publish a forward Mm -hmm. in the book that says hey a lot of stuff in this book sucks is bad for these reasons and then you at the end you publish maybe a little like work like little workbook or not workbook you know something where it's like hey a little breakdown a breakdown of some sort some of the different stuff some of the stuff you read was really terrible and bad here's why like uh, you know or maybe do it at the beginning i don't whatever yeah you have like a little breakdown about some of the ways that this the stuff in the book sucked or was bad or or you know and and you just educate based around that but yeah just removing it it's yeah yeah like it robs us of of the opportunity to educate yeah and to have that conversation yeah yeah, and then you layer on top of that that's, that's a lot of the changes were just truly... We're just like, who cares if the earthworm's skin is described as pink? It literally does, yeah. Who, what? who cares? Yeah. It it's, a worm. it's a worm. Yeah, just it don't... is pink. <laughs> yes, it's very strange. Uh, it's very strange. And yeah, there's, you know hesitant to say wokeness has gone too far but in this instance (laughs) but that's and then i think like that's that's the thing that bothers me about some of the stupider examples here though is that it really does feel like you guys are just handing them ammunition it feels like somebody parodying what like yeah they think like woke people you know people who are actually care about progressive values want to do with media which is is just not the case you just (laughs) You're not helping anybody. Yeah. By no, that's the thing. This is helping literally no one. The only person it's helping is the publisher trying to sell the book yeah. because they think that they won't be able to sell it if they leave the bad stuff in it because people won't want to buy it anymore because it's full of bad stuff. So they're like, what if we just get rid of the bad stuff? It's like, no. Roald Dahl said a lot of stupid, bad shit. You have to own that if you want to sell his books. No, and I I agree. Then that the stupid, bad shit that he said should stand. It's important that it stands. It's important that we know he said that shit. Yeah. And that he wasn't like a perfect dude. Yeah. No, I, yeah. Okay. I don't know. I I am always for uh, discussing works within context yeah Yeah. you know like like you were talking about huckleberry finn earlier if i were teaching huckleberry finn i would i would teach it incredibly intensely and i would teach it within its historical context yeah you know i think that's the way to do it and i think the other thing that's interesting though because we do often talk about is is in the context of adaptations which is what our whole show is about it there's actually an interesting layer to that of we often praise films Mm -hmm. for doing that editing true we often praise films for taking a story that has 
weird. We just did it with Divergent. There was a a, a scene in Divergent where they are where she specifically is talks about how uh, uh, Janine, the villain's, has like uh, uh, carrying extra weight on her stomach and has stretch marks on her knees. And we're like, what is the the villain has kind of overweight? Okay, well, this is nothing to do with anything. Seemingly, again, barring the potential, I, whatever. But. You know, we're literally just like, whoa, the villain's fat, get it? Like, like that's what we're doing. And we, we were like, hey, it's nice that the movie didn't do that. But that is different because when you're adapting it, you can then, you that that is the time yes. to... You are taking that story and you are bringing it into a different context yes yeah yes you yeah and and it and it's a non-destructive process you are not getting rid of yeah the previous right you're thing not it's based on changing or putting different words into the mouth of someone else yes you're saying hey this is my version of this thing and i don't like this shit in it get that out of here yeah and and i think the publishers thought they were doing that you know or whoever was behind these ideas with these books i think they well, thought they were doing I that i think they would be thought as being seen as doing that it's fair um and, and but it's it is yeah but it's very clearly it's like well you're not you didn't you didn't adapt this story you just edited some stuff out of it yeah without the input of the person who wrote the story and you just like it doesn't that doesn't it's not the same thing it's very, those are different yeah. things and yeah um, I didn't see anything noteworthy um, while I was putting this little segment together about um, like how his family or like the, his like the Roald Dahl Foundation or anything. So I assume that they signed off on it. They seem pretty down for but paid. So there was also a little note um, when I was looking into this on the Wikipedia page, um, and I, I didn't look into it further, so I don't know what's going on with it that it also came out like a month later that they had also not puffin specifically but the publisher of goosebumps had also done this really without rl stein's knowledge or permission Ooh. and that my friends is no. a recipe for a lawsuit That's, yeah you're going to get your ass sued for sure absolutely cuz yeah obviously there's a whole different thing if if that person you know if if RL Stan came back today and was like hey i didn't like that i used this language in this book here yeah let's let's, let's go ahead and change here. it that's you know sure, sure yeah. go for it but yeah it, you're 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 altering the historical record in some capacity when you make those changes retroactively with somebody's work who's not there to sign off on it or or make or recommend those changes themselves and it's yeah it's just it's not good don't do that Okay, moving on. <laughs> Let's talk about James and the Giant Peach, the film. The story of a daring explorer. Where are we? His extraordinary friends. We're lost. This is all your fault. You blithering nitwit. Bite me. Have you two gone mad? And a bizarre world where anything can happen. It's a giant shark. Pictures and the director of The Nightmare Before Christmas invite you to go over the edge. Good heavens, he's committed pesticide. And beyond your imagination. Is it not beautiful? A place where dreams come true. Wahoo! James and the Giant Peach. Ah! James and the Giant Peach is a 1996 movie directed by Henry Selleck. Who directed Coraline, The Nightmare Before Christmas, Monkey Bone, Wendell and Wild, among other things. 
those are probably the things he's most known for. Uh, and this is our second time doing one of his films. We mm-hmm. did Coraline, obviously, quite a few years ago. The film was written by Kerry Kirkpatrick, who wrote Smallfoot, Over the Hedge, The Spiderwick Chronicles, Chicken Run, and The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy film mm-hmm. that we did. And co-written by Jonathan Roberts, who wrote uh, The Lion King, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Jack Frost, among a, f- among a few other things. But those are the big ones. The film stars Paul Terry, Miriam Margulies, Joanna Lumley, Peter Postlewaite, Stephen Culp, Susan Turner Cray, Mike Starr, Simon Callow, Richard Dreyfus, Jeff Bennett, Jane Leaves, Susan Sarandon, and David Thewlis. The film has a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 78 on Metacritic, and a 6.7 out of 10 on IMDb, which is interesting. I'm surprised the IMDb score was that low. Mm-hmm. Not that that's super low, but it's lower than I guess I would have expected. And the film was nominated for one Oscar for Best Original Music. Uh, the score is by Randy Newman. The film made $37.7 million against a budget of $38 million, and mm. it was a pretty big flop. I don't think I knew that. Yeah, I didn't either. I thought it, hmm. I would have assumed it did fine, but yeah. no, it did not. And I believe the initial box office was lower. I don't know what that 37 is, but I was reading in a different part of the article that it's like initial box office run was like 28 million. So hmm. it was even less than that. That may include like a second run or, or something or some other sales yeah. or something, but yeah. So, uh, getting into some production notes, Joe Ramft, who was a writer at Disney, uh, he worked on A Bug's Life and Toy Story as a writer, among a ton of other things, but those are like two of his biggest projects that he was like a main script writer on, tried to convince the studio to adapt this film, uh, to adapt Roald Dahl's book in the early 80s, because he had read this story in third grade, and he loved the liberating themes Hmm. of it. But Disney turned it down because they thought it would be too expensive and too weird. (laughs) Oh, okay, Disney. (laughs) Yes. Uh, But then ultimately Disney would go on to acquire the rights to the book in 1992 when Felicity Dahl, who was Roald Dahl's widow uh, and the executor of his state, started selling off the rights to all of his stuff. That all happened apparently in 92 after he passed away. After they got the rights, they brought on Dennis Potter, who was a fairly prolific British TV writer, None of his stuff really screams I should write a children's book to me based on what I've seen. It was like it was like procedural crime dramas uh-huh. and stuff on like BBC, it seemed like. But um, but he was hired to write a first draft of the script. Uh, and Disney did not like this one because the tone was, quote, slightly black and bizarre. I don't know. Uh, that sounds kind of perfect and this, for a this, rolled doll. This draft included the sharks being Nazis, apparently. Interesting. I don't know. This is the note I read. Uh, later, Kirkpatrick and another writer named Bruce Joel Rubin were both brought on to write their own independent drafts of the script, with Kirkpatrick's being chosen as the version to move forward with. Prior to filming, Henry Selleck, who was brought on to direct, and Disney apparently butted heads quite a bit over whether this film should be live action or stop motion. Disney wanted it to be live action. Selleck wanted it to be stop motion. Ultimately... They landed on a hybrid approach. Ah, they compromised. Yes, in order to keep costs <laughs> down where the more fantastical elements in the middle uh-huh. are stop motion and the beginning of the and the ending are live action because live action is way cheaper to film yeah. than the it stop motion. This is interesting cuz I think that I've always thought that worked really well. Yeah, I in my memory when I when I was thinking on this I was like, "Oh, cuz I had forgot that. I in my head, I guess it's been so long since I've seen it. I, I was like, "Oh, it's just a stop motion movie." But I, and then I remember, "Oh, no, no, that's right. It is mm-hmm. does open and close live action." And yeah, apparently that was more so like a a cost-saving thing than an actual like creative decision. 
supposedly. Again, from what I the handful of things I read. Uh, getting into some fun facts that I thought were interesting. There's a puppet we see on one of the ships who is a captain. And it is the same head that was used for Jack in The Nightmare Before Christmas. There's even a moment where Centipede sees this captain character and says, a skeleton? Uh, and another fun fact, Jack in Nightmare Before Christmas was, was voiced by Chris Sarandon, uh, maybe most known as Prince Hubberdink in Princess mm. Bride. And in this movie, Miss Spider is voiced by his ex-wife, Susan Sarandon. Hmm. There's a little weird connection there. And they were no longer married at this point. They were married for like 10 years in the 70s, I think. So she just kept his name, I guess, which is interesting. I mean, um, the alliteration. Yes. You got to love that. That's fair. Uh, so Paul Terry, who plays James, this is his only feature film role. He was in a couple TV shows that I saw. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, he was in a Lady Gaga music video. Nice. So there you go. But yeah, this is the only film he was in. Felicity Dahl does think that Roald Dahl would have liked this film, saying, quote, he would have been delighted with what they did with James. It is a wonderful film, end quote. We will never know because he was dead at this point. But <laughs> she seems to think he would like it. Based on his track record with every other adaptation, yeah. I seems highly unlikely. But you never know. Maybe, yeah, maybe this would have been the one. <laughs> This is a pretty good one. I I, I liked the movie. I don't know how it is as an adaptation, but I liked the movie as a child. Uh, all right, and then getting into some reviews. Owen Gleiberman of Entertainment Weekly gave the film a positive review, uh, praising the animated portion, calling the live action segments though crude. And then for the New York Times, Janet Maslin called the film quote a technological marvel. Arch and innovative with a daringly offbeat visual conception and a strenuously artful film with a macabre edge. Hmm. So there you go. She was a fan. And Ebert was a fan. We're going to end with his. I had to go find. This was not included on Wikipedia. I had to go go to his website and dig through and paraphrase his review here, which a lot of his reviews are just this brief summary of the movie, which is always very funny to me. <laughs> Seems it's interesting. I, yeah. It's not how you write a review. <laughs> That's how Ebert wrote him. Um, Ebert gave the film three out of four stars saying, quote, almost all Disney animated films involve dead or absent parents whose departure free is their little heroes to become independent adventurers. But James and the giant peach wipes out the parents with so much glee. It almost seems like an inside joke. Uh, he would go on <laughs> to say stop motion is not a new technique, but what Selick and Burton have done with it brings stop motion to a new plateau. The movements of their characters are so fluid compared with the slight jerkiness of older stop motion that I wonder if computers have been used to smooth out some of the motion. If not, then their achievement is even more amazing. All of the creatures, especially the colorful insects that share James's journey, are brought to vivid life, and the fact that we can see realistic textures like the cloth in some of the costumes gives the illusion an eerie quality halfway between reality and invention. As for the movie, based on a familiar children's book by Roald Dahl, it will, I think, entertain kids for whom stop-motion animation is the last thing they're thinking about. He goes on to summarize a few more events of the film before ending with, oh, and there are some songs. That's the last <laughs> sentence of his <laughs> review. <laughs> Three out of four stars. So. Excellent. Uh, Ebert. Have you ever read this before? No. I've seen the movie a bunch of mm -hmm. times when I was a kid, but I remember very little about it. The thing I remember most is when he makes a lantern out of a potato chip bag because hmm. i always thought that was so cool <laughs> i was like you can do that you kind of can i think but <laughs> anyways it's just like a uh, one of those like chinese lanterns yeah. or whatever yeah, basically yeah. but i thought that was super cool but I, that's about all i remember <laughs> <laughs> anyways uh yeah no i have not read it um 
Or if I did, I again, I read it when I was very young. And I, I have remember. read this book um, yeah. when I was a kid, very long time ago. Yeah. No, I'm excited to read it, and I'm excited to watch it again, and and yeah. see how much of it comes crawling back out of the depths of my. You know, <laughs> I have a feeling a lot of it's just gonna like, like yeah. emerge from the depths of my psyche. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, I'm gonna be like, oh, yep, remember that, remember that. Oh my God, that scene. Yeah, I just have a feeling that's gonna be the experience of watching this movie. But we will see. Uh, that'll be in just a few weeks, or just a few weeks. It'll be next week. What am I talking about, Katie? What's uh, where can people watch it? Well, as always, you can check with your local library or a local video rental store if you still have one. Uh, we love for you to support your local establishments. Yep. Um, but if not, you can stream this with a subscription on Disney Plus, or you can rent it for around four to five bucks on YouTube, Vudu, Redbox, DirecTV, or Amazon. There you go. Those are all the places you can watch it and do that and then come back. We're going to talk about it. It should be a lot of fun. Until that time, guys, gals, I'm Binary Pals, everybody else. Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. And, and keep, keep being, being awesome. awesome.